Chapter 4, Hold the Bus, The Exciting Life of the Elementary School-Aged Child. I can still have nightmares about it. We would have started the day in plenty of time to catch the bus. I just do not know what would happen. Before I knew it, I'd be standing at my front door in my attractive moth-eaten orange bathrobe, yelling at the top of my lungs, Hold the bus! My precious first-grade daughter would be hightailing it down the driveway, book bag and lunchbox in hand, blonde curls blowing against that big bow in her hair, wiping oatmeal off her face. I'd be praying for her the entire run down the driveway, knowing she could wipe out in a twinkling of the eye. I tell you, it was exhausting. I would be ready for bed, and it would only be 7 o'clock in the morning. To this day, I cannot imagine why in the world I subjected myself day after day. I had a car... I even had a driver's license. I must have liked the sport of it all. What else could it have been? My stars, the school was only two miles away. Looking back, I would have saved myself a lot of frustration by throwing the bathrobe to the wind and donning some duds, grabbing the kids, and heading for school. Although I must admit, we did carpool in later years, and it proved as effective as catching the bus. What is it about mornings and school-aged children anyway? It's kind of like mixing oil and water. They just don't seem to go together. You wake them up, you go start the coffee. You wake them up again, you get breakfast on the table. You wake them up again, you go get your clothes on. You wake them up again, finally you get the foghorn out of the closet. You get the message. I suppose it's a lack of desire on their part to do what they have to do. As adults, we are much akin to the school-aged child too. Sometimes it's hard for us to muster up the desire to do what we're supposed to do. I find this so very true in my Christian walk. God calls me to do something, and I really want to be obedient, yet I can find a million things to do before I do what he has called me to do. Similar to the example above, I could just stay in bed with the covers over my head. Of course, then I would miss the wonderful blessings that come through obedience. Scripture has a great example of this very human, very strong character trait. It is found in the book of Jonah. What a surprise. God had given Jonah a very specific order. We find in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amate, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah 1, 1 through 1-2 God was clear. Go to Nineveh, Jonah. Just like we are clear to our children in the morning when we tell them to get up and get out of bed. How does Jonah respond? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 1, 3. He did the human thing. He fled. Just as our kids do the human thing and pull the covers over their heads. As we persist in trying to get them up, so God persisted with Jonah. We find in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah 1, 4. Through the casting of lots, the sailors discovered that Jonah is the cause of this violent storm. Jonah tells them that it is his fault, and that to calm the waves, all they needed to do was to throw him overboard. The sailors tried rowing back to the land, but to no avail. They were terrified to throw Jonah into the sea and cried out to God not to hold them accountable for this man's life. As soon as Jonah hit the water, 
The sea grew calm. At this, the sailors offered a sacrifice to God and made vows to him. The Lord then provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. Finally, God gets Jonah's attention. I used the example of the foghorn to get the attention of my children, but if you'd rather use a great big fish, be my guest. You see, God will get the attention of his disobedient children. If you are truly his child and you are being disobedient to his revealed will in your life, he will discipline you and get you back on the right path. That is the promise of Hebrews 12. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. The word disciplines used in verse 6 is the Greek word pedeo, which is derived from child. It is used in the activity directed toward the moral and spiritual nurture and training of the child to influence the will and the behavior. In a religious sense, to discipline in order to educate someone to conform to divine truth. God does this to those he loves. The word loves, used in the same verse, is the Greek word agapeo, meaning to value, esteem, prize, treat as precious, to be devoted to. You see, we are precious in his sight, and he wants the very best for us, which, of course, is his will. Therefore, if we are his child, he will discipline us back into his perfect will for our lives. He tells us in verse 8 that if we do not undergo discipline, then we are not true sons. We are not his. Let's return now to Jonah. Here he is in the belly of the great big fish. He realizes the sinfulness in his life, and he effectively combats it with the following prayer. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah 2, 7-10. He realizes that by clinging, by clinging to his own will, he was forfeiting the very mercy, love, and kindness of God. Nothing is worth that. God in his love for us does not delight in his discipline or chastening of us. He is far more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. As parents, we too must be more concerned with our children's holiness than their happiness. It is far easier and much more peaceful to let our children have their own way. But if we give in to their happiness now, we chance losing their holiness later. Elementary school-aged children can be such a delight. From about ages 6 to 11 or 12 is a period in their life that is relatively peaceful. I like to call it the calm before the storm. 
You are through with changing diapers and having to dress and feed them, and you're not yet to the point of handing them the car keys. The physical stresses of taking care of them have somewhat subsided, and the mental anguish of the teen years has not yet come into play. They are still very much under your wing, and that is a place that I always enjoyed having my children. I realize that there are exceptions to this. Some children are just plain difficult to raise. From from the time they are born to the time they leave the nest, it is overwhelmingly demanding. Take heart, parent. Some of the most difficult children to raise are the most exceptional adults. You do your part. That is your responsibility. God will handle the results. That is his responsibility. We will not be held accountable for our children's actions before God, only for our own actions or lack of actions. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Deuteronomy 24.16 When raising a difficult child, we sometimes have the desire to want to give up. It's easier to pour our lives into our work into our activities, and even to our other children than to face squarely the problems we may be having with our problem child. Do not give up. Do not give in. God's ways are tried and true. Be a parent that perseveres. Again, we do our part and we leave the results to God. You're probably saying to yourself, I'm tired. I'm weary of all this. Do not try to do this in your own strength. You will fail. You must totally rely on the strength of God to be able to keep going. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 That is such a comforting verse. The word rest is my particular favorite. In verse 29 is the Greek word anaposis, which means pause, rest, cessation from labor. It implies the relaxing or letting down of cords or strings, which have been strained or drawn too tightly. Don't you feel that way sometimes? That you are drawn so tightly that you could snap at any given moment? Christian, appropriate the strength of Christ. It is available to us in abundance. It is inconceivable to me that we would live our lives apart from his power that is available to us. Of course, this is not done once and then forgotten. You cannot just pray for the strength of Christ and never pray again. It is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day occurrence. This is what the Christian walk is all about. We trust in the Lord, we acknowledge his ways, and we let him direct our paths. Therein is the peace, as Solomon puts it in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5-6 through six. The word trust, used in verse 5, is the Hebrew word bata, which means to attach oneself, to trust, to confide in, to feel safe, be confident, secure. The basic idea signifies firmness or solidity. 
It denotes a confident expectation. The folly of relying upon any other types of security is strongly contrasted with depending upon God alone. To put this in terms that my moronic mind can understand, we are to be as human remorse. Just as a remora attaches itself to the shark for its sustenance, we are to attach ourselves to the Lord. The word lean in verse 5 is equally interesting. In Hebrew, it's the word seon, which means to rest upon, support oneself upon, to rely on, to place confidence in. It denotes an attitude of trust. God knows how we are made. He knows our very strong tendency to rely on our own strength. I'm confident that is why he addresses this subject so often in Scripture. The word he uses for understanding in verse 5 is the Hebrew word binyana, which means intelligence. I think it is so comical that we continue to rely on our own flimsy abilities when we are offered the very intelligence of God. Paul states in Colossians, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have available to us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I do not know about you, but that sounds pretty awesome to me. Perhaps I appreciate this fact so much because I have trouble even spelling Einstein, much less being him. Back to Proverbs 3, the word ways used in verse 6 is referring to your life's journey. As I said before, this trusting is to be throughout your entire life, not just a one-time thing. The word acknowledged used in verse 6 is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know, to be familiar with. Our job throughout our life's journey is to know God, to be familiar with his ways and his will. As Paul so eloquently states in Philippians, I want to know Christ, Philippians 3, 10. He goes on to say in verse 12 of the same chapter, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12-14 Paul realizes that this is a process. He forgets the past. We cannot change that. And he presses on to the future. His goal is to win the prize. That, dear Christian, should be our goal as well. Returning again to Proverbs 3, the word past used in verse 6 is the Hebrew word aura, meaning or describing the way of righteousness or wickedness, the path leading to life or to death. The word straight is the Hebrew word yasser, which means to declare right, to approve, to be pleasing. It is ethically an upright, moral life. What scripture is saying is clear. If we attach ourselves to the Lord in our pursuit, is to know him, then he, and I emphasize he, will keep us on the path of righteousness, which leads to life. God does the work here. Our job is to relinquish the control to him. Again, this is not done just once, but moment by moment, day by day. 
God's rules for raising children are really not that difficult to comprehend. We are to love them, care for them, discipline them, teach them his word and commandments. It is really quite clear. I just wish it were as easy as it were clear. The reason I believe that it's so difficult for us as parents is that it forces us, or it should force us, to examine our own lives and ways and deal with the weaknesses that the Holy Spirit brings to light. It is never easy to face our own flaws. We do not like to dwell on our shortcomings. But as mentioned earlier, you cannot raise godly children if you choose not to be godly. We cannot give something that we do not have to give. The godly life must be ours before it can be taught to our children. The Bible is very clear that we are to teach our children God's word. Deuteronomy tells us these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. According to the above passage, it appears that we are to be teaching our children at all times. If we are to be teaching them when we sit, when we walk, when we lie down, and when we rise, that covers about all of our day. We are to incorporate God's truths into all of our life experiences. This is not the only place in Scripture that we are told to teach our children God's truth. Deuteronomy 4 states, Only be careful and watch yourself closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Deuteronomy 4, 9. The book of Proverbs says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart, turn from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Paul also adds in 1 Timothy a wonderful reason. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life in the life to come, 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. through 8. The spiritual training of our children is of utmost importance to God. We are not only to train our children in God's word, we are also to tell them all the wonderful things God has done in our lives. This is to encourage them to persevere in their faith, and not only them, but is also encouraging for us to remember all the ways God has worked in our lives. If this is our focus, we will have less of a tendency to stray. Remember the creator of the universe, the creator of both you and me, knows exactly what makes us tick. He knows us perfectly. He knows that we are prone to forget all the wonderful things he has done in our lives. The repetition of all that he has done for us keeps us focused and on target. He does not give us rules for no reason. Everything he commands has purpose. This is a great truth, especially for those of us who detest any and all things that waste our energy, time, and money. What are some suggestions for training our children in God's word? When my children were in elementary school, I would get a poster and write Bible verses on it. One that I thought was particularly applicable for them, for that matter, applicable for all of us. I would tape it to the wall in the kitchen, a room we were always in. You would be surprised how quickly we would all pick up the truth just by having it displayed. I suppose that's what it means 
to put it on the door frames, as mentioned in Deuteronomy. It's important for our children to know that God's commands are not burdensome, but rather they are for our good. John says this perfectly in 1 John chapter 5. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. If we can get the concept through to our children and to us for that matter, that God's ways are for our very best, then they, like us, will be more inclined to be obedient. I believe this is a key factor in training our kids. First, they must realize that, like them, we too are sinners. We are in the same race as they are. Never mislead them into thinking that you have attained perfection in your Christian walk. You, like they, will never attain this until Christ returns. As Paul states in Philippians 3, not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 12 through 14. All of us are to be pressing on towards perfection. The second factor is that we must get it into our understanding and their understanding that obedience to God's commands are for our very best. Again, if we do not believe that, neither will they. Jeremiah has the most terrific verses regarding this very subject. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 13 God's plans for us are always for our good and for his glory, never one surpassing the other. Our children need to know and understand this truth. A firm belief in this will keep them strong during the storms of life. If we believe that God has purpose in all things, then even the most horrific circumstances can be endured. Their pain has purpose. Another very important point for them to realize is that you did not make the rules. God did. Your job as a parent is to enforce the rules and to obey them yourself. When my kids were this age and would misbehave, I would find a Bible verse that would relate it to their poor behavior and make them write, write it and write it and write it and write it. You get the drift. Even if they did not get the spiritual truth memorized, They at least had practice in their penmanship. This procedure reinforced the truth that these were God's rules and not something that I've just made up on a whim. Another benefit was that it would usher in a brief period of quietness. Some examples of the above exercise would be as follows. Let's say your child has a problem with telling the truth. A perfect passage to choose is found in Proverbs. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Proverbs six sixteen through 19 Perhaps your children have a problem getting along with each other. Paul addresses that perfectly in Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 9-18 The entire chapter of Romans 12 is so applicable to righteous living that we memorize the whole chapter. You get the idea. It is well worth your time and effort to get into the Bible and select verses appropriate for the offense. There's tremendous benefit in it for your children, too. It is never a waste of time to be in the Word of God. It shows them that we are not the ones that made the rules God did. It is also wise for them to learn at an early age that just as there are blessings in obedience, there are are also consequences to sin or disobedience. Always. God's Word is very clear on that. Jeremiah chapter 7 is a wonderful example on obedience. This is what the Lord, word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and commit adultery, murder and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place of Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 13. And later in the same passage, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forward. Jeremiah seven twenty one to 24 
May it not be that way in our homes, Christian. May we always walk in obedience to his commands. May we always go forward and not backward. Never believe for a moment Satan's lie that God is not watching. How much clearer can he be in his word than in verse 11? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord, Jeremiah seven eleven. I would always tell my children that they might be able to fool me, but they would never be able to fool God. As the writer of Hebrews states clearly, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13 At this point, I would like to interject that I am no big fat example of perfect parenting. In fact, when my son found out I was writing a book on raising godly children, he suggested I do it under an alias. Our example is and always will be Jesus. Parenting is a struggle for me too. I fail miserably every day. I am a sinner, as are my children, striving along with them to become Christ-like. I have seen success, and I've experienced failure, just like you, if you're breathing, that is. As stated before, the Christian walk is very difficult. It is a daily relinquishing of the will, and your flesh will fight you every step of the way. There's not one thing natural about it. That is why it is so important to realize that we do not have do this in our own strength. It is the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian that enables he or she to walk as Jesus walked. If you attempt to walk the Christian walk in your own flesh, you will fail every time. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. John fifteen five through 6 The word can, used in verse 5, is the Greek word dynamē, which means to be able. It also means to have the power to do something by virtue of one's own ability and resources, to be capable and to possess skill or competence to be sufficiently powerful. Christ is plainly telling us that we do not have the ability to produce fruit, walk successfully as a Christian in our own strength. Remember, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be godly parents, our example being worthy of following. When we fail, we are to repent and ask God for forgiveness and to restore our fellowship back with him. Keep your accounts short with God. The longer you go without repenting, you become dull to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. When this happens, you will begin to live your life in the flesh, and sin will become more and more apparent. I know this is true because I have experienced this in my own life, and I have seen this in the life of others, and also throughout Scripture. Christian, beware of living in the flesh. I realize that I may seem repetitive about the Christian walk. I hope that through this repetition, I'm stressing to you the grave importance of it all. A famous football coach was once asked, what was the key to his fabulous success? He replied, I go over the basics and to go over the basics and to go over the basics. The Christian walk is the same way. 
We must constantly remind our children and ourselves of the basics, lest we lose our focus. I believe this is one of the main problems of our churches today. We have fallen away from teaching the basics of the Christian faith. We no longer emphasize the importance of daily Bible reading, scripture memory, prayer, and application of God's truth in our churches, and we are reaping the consequences of this. We have churches that preach many things contrary to scripture, and because we are not in the word of God, we are not aware that we are not being taught the truth. Paul admonishes us in Colossians, see to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ, Colossians 2, 8. Again, Paul says in Second Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will be condemned and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 Our ignorance will be no excuse. Search the scriptures and know the truth yourself. Be able to back up what you say with God's word. Make sure what you believe is in line with God's word. Truth is not relative. God's word is truth. It is trustworthy. It is absolute. It is sure. Returning our focus again to the elementary school age child, we're going to discuss encouragement. I believe this to be a very important aspect of child rearing. In fact, encouragement is a very important aspect of the Christian walk. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ shows us his perfect example of encouragement, as Paul states in 2 Thessalonians. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17 The first word encouragement mentioned in verse 16 is the Greek perikalesis, meaning encouragement for the purpose of strengthening and establishing the believer in his faith. This, he says, is eternal. So is God's word. All of scripture is actually a paraclesis, meaning an exhortation, an encouragement, and comfort. The second word used for encourage in verse 17 is a Greek word perikaleo, meaning to the side of, to call, to aid, help, comfort, and encourage. I love that he uses this particular word because it allows me to envision Jesus walking beside me, bringing me encouragement. We should note that our encouragement is not some vain attempt to build others up, but rather to encourage them in the faith, to encourage them in what really matters. How do we go about encouraging our youngsters? Certainly we can encourage them by our words, let them know how precious they are in God's sight. They need to realize that they are of great value and of great significance. Christ died for them. He died for us too. 
We must never forget the sacrifice he made for us. It is very humbling, but it also shows how very much we are worth to God. Now, human mind will never be able to fathom this love for us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11, how the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Children, as well as adults, can be very cruel to each other. This is an extremely hard world we live in. Rejection and hatred are rampant. Your children place plenty of all the world has to offer in school. Be a safe harbor for them. Teach them through your words of the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ. As I stated before, all everybody really wants is to be truly loved and accepted. Another form of encouragement is the written word. I particularly like this method. I used to enjoy putting notes in their lunches to let them know how much they were to- loved during the day. Never hurts to remind them. I would rather make the mistake of letting them know too often, if that were even possible, than not often enough. A wonderful example of this is a story told of a high school teacher who one day, when her class was acting up, decided to give a marvelous assignment. She told everyone in the class to take out a sheet of paper and write down the name of every member in the class. Beside each name, the students were to write down something that they particularly liked or admired about that student. The papers were turned in, and the teacher made each student a sheet of all the things written about them and by whom. When she passed them out, she heard several statements like, I never knew they felt that way, or I didn't realize they admired that. The class graduated and several years passed. The teacher received a call one day about an untimely death of one of the students in that particular class. She was asked to come to the funeral. When she arrived, and was introduced, several people told her how much she had meant to the student that had died. When the parents of the student realized who she was, they handed her this worn piece of paper. On it were the comments of the other students that she had written down for him. The parents told her that he had always carried it around with him in his wallet. Several other members of the class were also there. Each one went on to say how they had kept their papers too. Some carried it with them. Others had put them in a special place for safekeeping. Never underestimate the power to encourage in the written word. Unlike verbally, where a word might ring in your ears or your heart for a time, the written word is tangible and can be read and reread when the encouragement is needed. Everyone needs encouragement from time to time, especially those who are young and tender and so susceptible to the harshness of this world. Another way to encourage your children is by doing something special for them. It does not have to be anything big, just thoughtful. Perhaps you can cook their favorite meal, iron their pillowcases, buy their favorite snack, or better yet, take them for their favorite snack after school. Whatever floats their boat, you know what is special to your child. The action on your part shows them your love, sometimes sacrificial, and that you were thinking of them. A planned action of encouragement 
Whatever form it takes, be it a meal, a flower, a snack, or a small gift, tells the person that they were thought of. And it is special to be thought of, especially by your parents. Resist the thought that perhaps you need encouragement too. Satan has a way to keep us from encouraging others by thinking we should be the one receiving the encouragement. First of all, Christ is sufficient. Even if no one encourages you, Christ is sufficient. Remember, he is at the right he is right beside you to encourage you. Secondly, there is a wonderful promise in Scripture given to the encourager. It is found in the book of Proverbs. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. The word translated refreshes is Hebrew rawa, meaning to drink to satisfaction, quench the thirst, satisfy, lavish upon, refresh. The word refreshed in Hebrews is yara, meaning to water upon, rain, shower, to be refreshed. Just as the flowers of the field are rained upon by God to bring about their exquisite beauty, those who satisfy others by their encouragement are showered upon by the very encouragement of God. God is faithful to his promises, Christian. Do not miss the blessing of being an encourager. Aside from the need of encouragement, love, and affirmation, the elementary school-aged child needs to help needs help learning how to redeem his or her time. We are told in Scripture that we are to redeem the time. Paul tells us in Ephesians five fifteen through seventeen, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. We are to make the most of every opportunity given us. Our lives are so full of time wasters. From the television, to the telephone, to the shopping malls, to the catalogs, the magazines that come across the desk, plus a billion other ways, we are constantly giving the chance to waste our precious time. I, for one, fall for many of these things. Again, the best way to teach our children is by our example. Ouch. If we find ourselves spending an inordinate amount of time on any activity that does not reap eternal rewards, we should change that activity. This is often easier said than done. Old habits can die hard. During the past few years, I have been convicted of many time wasters in my life. God has faithfully shown them to me one by one. He did not overwhelm me by showing them all to me at once, thank goodness. I am now and will continue to be in the process of making my time count. I try to make this my daily focus. It is very evident in my life when I fall on this point. I revert back so quickly to my old habits. God has daily planned for our lives. I am saddened when I miss out on what he has in store for me on a particular day because I choose to do some mindless activity that is not redeeming. I miss out on the blessing and the fellowship of being in the center of his will. Make sure your children realize that time is a very precious gift and one that we will not be held and one that we will be held accountable for. Again, monkey see, monkey do. They will be more careful with their time if you are. Another important issue that needs to be addressed with the elementary school age child is the matter of friends. This is the first time most of our children are placed in the position on their own, so to speak, in making new friends and building relationships with others. Prior to this time, their friends have probably been the children of our friends. 
people that we have put them together with. This new venture can be a very exciting time for them. It's enjoyable for most children to branch out and discover others with common interests as their own. As parents, we should discuss with our children the importance of selecting close friends with admirable character traits, hopefully such as theirs. The Bible is very clear on the type of friends we should seek. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And again, Solomon tells us in Proverbs, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. For you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. I heard a great, great analogy of this once. If you take a white glove and you put it on and you run it across the dirt, you no longer have a white glove. It's our natural tendency to migrate down to the lowest level. This is true for adults, but it is especially true for children. As Christians, we have a difficult task in keeping our balance in life. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus says in John, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John seventeen fourteen through 21 Jesus tells us twice in verse 14 and 16 that we are not of the world. Yet sandwiched between these two verses, he prays that we are not taken from the world, but protected from the evil one. What does he mean that we are not of the world? I believe he's saying that we're not to be caught up in all the world has to offer. We are not to buy into worldliness, self-gratification, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, greed, and on and on. The world's voice is so loud. It drowns out the gentle whisper of God. As I said before, and will say again, it is very easy to fall for the temporal worldly actions of non-believers. Jesus goes on to say that we are to stay in the world and praise for our protection from evil. Why on earth does he want us to remain here? The answer lies in the fact that for some unknown reason to man, God desires to use humans to further his kingdom. I cannot imagine why. If I were God, I would not want to use such frail, undependable species as man for the workings of my kingdom. Yet God, out of his supreme love for us, lets us have a taste of the eternal and blessings in abundance by allowing us to serve him in winning others to Jesus. What does this have to do with close friends? It's easy to choose friends who are of the world, especially if you're young and immature in your thought process. It is very exciting to live on the wild side. Unfortunately, sin can be a lot of fun. Do not misunderstand. I believe we're, are, we are to have non-Christians as friends. How else could we be used to witness to others? But your close friends, your confidants, the ones that you listen to their counsel, your inner circle, 
should be believers. This concept is difficult for adults to master, but even more difficult for children. First of all, they do not have the maturity or the wisdom to know what to look for in choosing a friend. Adults fall prey to this as well. We all want to gravitate to the popular, the exciting, or the outgoing personality. You know, the type that everyone longs to be friends with. Just because a person is popular, successful, famous, or whatever does not mean that they automatically have the qualities a person should desire in a lasting friendship. Friendships that stand the test of time include such qualities as loyalty, honesty, confidentiality, loving kindness, selflessness, and courageousness. It is also important that a friend is willing to take a stand for their friend, to go into battle for them, so to speak, and to be willing to go into and follow through with a covenantal relationship. All these traits are displayed in the lives of King David and his close friend Jonathan, son of King Saul. Scripture gives us much insight into a desired godly friendship through the lives of these two men. The wonderful examples are found in the book of 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself, For Samuel 18.1. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt, For Samuel 18.3-4. Jonathan was the son of King David. David was a shepherd. Because of Jonathan's love for King for David, he makes a covenant with him and ratifies it by giving David his robe and his tunic, his sword and bow and belt. This action showed that Jonathan considered David to be an equal, even though he was heir to the throne and David was just a shepherd boy. Scripture goes on to say, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 7. Jonathan goes to bat for David and gets results. He stood up for his friend, and he was able to totally change the situation, at least for a while. We read on. Then David fled from Naath at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is this crime? Why have I wronged your father? that he is trying to take my life. Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. 
Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. 1 Samuel 20, 1-4 Then Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day, uh, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord called David's enemies to account, and Jonathan and David reaffirmed his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. 1 Samuel twenty, twelve through 17 Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the month. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. 1 Samuel twenty, thirty through 34 After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other. In the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. First Samuel twenty, forty-one through forty-two. In the last chapter of First Samuel, the Philistines kill Jonathan and his three brothers, and Saul is wounded. Saul tells his armor bearer to run him through with the sword, but the armor bearer refuses. Saul took his own sword and fell on it, taking his life. Many years later, David remembers his covenant with Jonathan, and we find in Scripture the following. David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked Ziba. Answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Ammiah, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. When Mehibosheth, 
son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mehibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Second Samuel 9, 1 through 7. And Mehibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Second Samuel nine thirteen. Loyalty, honesty, confidentiality, loving kindness, selflessness, courageousness are characteristics found in lasting friendships. Teach your children this. Help them see the importance of friendships that are founded on these wonderful traits. It will benefit them for a lifetime. In closing this chapter on the elementary school age child, we need to look once again at the importance of spending time with our children. Of course, you cannot do much of what is discussed in this chapter apart from spending time with your child. We must take advantage of their desire to want to be with us. This is so fleeting. Have fun with your kids. Throw a ball with them, go to lunch with them, take them to the park or to the movies or to get ice cream. Believe me when I tell you that no time is wasted when invested in the lives of your children. There are two wonderful illustrations of this very point. Both are true, I might add. One was given to me firsthand by a very dear lady. The other I heard in a sermon. Both were very convicting. I had the privilege of riding home from a church retreat with my sister-in-law's mother. I was asking her to tell me about her relationship with her parents when she was a young girl. She told me her father had been a doctor in a small southern town. One day, he had asked her if she would like to go with him to ride with him to call on a patient. She said that, that she joyfully accepted. She adored going anywhere with her daddy. She went on to say that she waited in the car while he was went inside to treat the patient. Upon returning, he asked her if she would like to go get something to eat. She, of course, was delighted. The restaurant was about 30 minutes away. She told me that he ordered one hamburger and a glass of milk for her and two hamburgers and a glass of milk for himself. What is so amazing about the story is that it took place over 60 years ago. And this dear lady still remembers with fondness every detail of the time spent with her daddy, even down to what he had ordered. Again, the time we spend with our children is precious to them and to the Lord. There was also once a small boy named Johnny whose father asked him if he would like to go fishing for the day. Joyfully, the boy accepted. The father and son spent the entire day fishing together, talking and laughing. They made such an impression on Johnny that even when he became an adult, he still told the story of how special it was to spend the entire day fishing with his dad. Many years later, long after his dad had died, Johnny came across an old diary that had belonged to the father. He was thumbing through it and came across a special fishing day. On it was written, Went fishing with Johnny. Wasted day. What we may perceive as a waste of time may very well be of the utmost importance to our child. No time is wasted when invested in the lives of our children. Now that we're so proficient in raising the younger child, it is time for us to take a deep breath and proceed on. There's still very much to learn from God's word for the completion of the task that lies before us. Hold on to your hats 
And let's get started. I believe I hear someone falling up the stairs. <laughs> 